0: First, though, continuing to talk about what is happening in parts of the province where wildfires are burning out of control. Let's check in with the mayor of Clearwater. Merlin Blackwell has called for more resources to be brought in, not only to that town, but to other parts of the province as well. And he joins us now on the line. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me, Jill.
0: What is the situation like where you are right now in Clearwater?
1: Right now, within, uh, say, 50 kilometers of clear water, we have uh, four fires, one major one, and that's the Sparks Lake fire, which is due south of us at this point, and threatening uh, barrier, uh, the Chuchua community of the First Nation, and, uh, and Darfield and a couple other incorporated areas, or unincorporated areas near us. Um, today is pretty nice. It uh, rained a little bit overnight, but that really only buys us about three days of safety. Um, before that all dries up and we go back to square one.
0: And I don't want to jinx it at this point, but I understand with give, with all of the fire activity we've seen in B.C., yesterday we were talking to the board chair of the, the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. So in that area, is it at this point Clearwater is the only part of the district that hasn't been put on either evacuation alert or evacuation order?
1: We have dodged... So many bullets at this point. Yes, that is absolutely correct. But uh, with all the road closures and everything going on south of us, there's really we feel really blessed and lucky at this point to have made it through this fire season uh, relatively knock on wood unscathed at this point.
0: But like you said, even with the rainfall that you've seen, that just buys a bit more time. And here we are still in mid-August.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you know, we've we've been watching this for a long time. Obviously, prior to the heat wave, um, watching Litton Litton's in the TNRD, and uh, you know, I know Mayor Jad Polderman quite well. Um, and uh, you know, we had the discussion about how Litton would probably go uh, a few days before it did at a TNRD meeting. And you know, pretty much all of us mayors at one point or another have talked emergency plans, how how this summer was going to affect this, and then when that heat wave hit. And we felt everything changed. The trees started to, you know, literally cook their needles on their branches. And, um, you know, it's been a heck of a long summer to this point.
0: What are you doing then as a community to be ready? Should things turn? We know things can change so quickly as far as having those operation plans in place and making sure there are places if people need to leave their homes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're running through our evacuation plans. Um, you know, even though we're not under direct threat, we've got our emergency operations center up and running for a few days now. It's double check, plan, 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 and and I think one of the biggest jobs for all of our all of us mayors, and you know, when I talk to Mayor Robin Smith on a daily basis here from Logan Lake, it, it's just keep, you know, nagging to the point of nagging where it's it's infuriating. I'm sure to some people, or citizens. Be prepared. Have your 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 bug out bag ready. Have all those important documents ready to go. Those those precious precious valuables. Your family together. The whole you know, basically the, the lower mainland equi- equivalent of an earthquake quick kit, ready ready to go in your vehicle or, or on your front uh, couch, ready to go out the door and, and and be gone at a no no moments notice. Uh, you know, it's it's just that kind of level of tension we're living in right now.
0: Do you have concerns about access or as far as highway routes? I know you're north of that, but are you, do you have concerns with routes that people will need if they want to evacuate or just for traveling as it is now?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, last night, uh, the Highway 1 uh, between Lytton and Spencer's Bridge area uh, went out with a mudslide. It's, it's basically almost a daily occurrence to have one of the major highway routes, and there's not very many ways out of a lot of our places. Cut off by wildfire, now by washout. There were floods um, because of the, the, the weather conditions here um, near, between Chase and, and Kamloops last night. It's, it's so much chaos all at once that you have to be concerned that Plan A and Plan B May not work for you in the event of an evacuation, and you may you may need to either uh, you know hunker down in place or find you know Plan C to to get yourself to safety in, in times like these.
0: Uh, When we talked with uh, Ken Gillis with the uh, TNRD yesterday, one of his concerns was resources. Uh, He was saying that there aren't enough resources that are in place to fight these wildfires and to help people with things like traffic checks. And you just talked about how these main routes are cut off. Uh, People are now driving hours around. I know the, the mayor of Princeton has expressed concern about this. Uh, we've yeah. heard calls saying at least bring in the military because putting an 18-year-old in a safety vest at a traffic stop isn't fair to anybody, especially the 18-year-old. Would you like to see more resources as well brought in?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Mayor Robin Smith and I had a heart-to-heart about this yesterday morning, and that's, this was her thought, and I absolutely agree with it as well. I would love to see the mater- the military brought in to assist with this in a larger role. The nice thing about the military, and I've dealt with them before in, the, in parks when they used to come through new convoys here, they come self-contained. They have their own communication systems and infrastructure. So you don't have to worry about finding you know, even a school for them to bunk out in. They, they can just set up and go, and they work completely independently of everything else. The other thing, which is, was Robin's major thought on this, is that they come in a uniform that demands respect. Nobody is going to argue with somebody at a military checkpoint, like they are going to with that uh, 18-year-old in a flaggers vest, or even my, you know, my chubby self in my hard hat telling them to move on. Um, you know, this is the reality of what we're dealing with right now. The, the RCMP is stretched. Um, most of the people that do these. Tasks that we'd be asking the military to help us with are volunteer search and rescue or, you know, great irony here, our volunteer fire departments, which have had a long summer and really are needed to be tasked to other duties at this point. Uh,
0: I don't know if this is something you can even do at this point, but what are your thoughts on the provincial response? I know there have been people bringing up the fact that the premier is vacationing on the East Coast. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, specifically on the premier, you know, if the NDP and the premier haven't built a strong enough infrastructure within cabinets and and, uh, their higher levels of management to, uh, to take things on without the premier being in present and in place, then that concerns me as a system. But I don't think that's the case. And, you know, I, I know a lot has been made about him not being here. It's an optics thing for me. Um, it would be very hard for me to leave my town to go on vacation at a time like this. In fact, I wouldn't do it. So it's an optics mistake. As far as an operational mistake, I don't think it is at this particular point. I have a lot of confidence in the B.C. government and wildfire. But I will say this, and I, and I called for this very early on, you know, over a month ago, that this was an all-hands-on-deck situation before the state of emergency was declared. And, and that resources of every kind that you can think of need to be thrown at this. And I'm still hearing, through my sources that are fighting on these fires, that there aren't enough resources that we could continue. We could continue to add new things like uh, water tenders and trucks and 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 you know equipment and train firefighters to this fight um, because you could always use more on this. There isn't the level that we could, we should and could have during this fight right now.
0: All right. Merlin Blackwell, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks again so much for being available and for talking to us about this.
1: Absolutely. No problem. Anytime.
0: Well, you may have heard this. About 20-25 minutes ago, Drive BC put out the information that the Coquihalla Highway 5 is now open between Hope and Merritt, but there is a travel advisory in effect due to the wildfire activity. Essential travel is being asked only. There are no facilities available. Drive BC saying there is no stopping, no access to on and off ramps and to watch for crews and wildlife and debris on the road. Well, we're going to check in now with Spencer Coyne, who is the Mayor of Princeton. Spencer, thank you so much for being with us. Hi there. Uh, I know you would put out uh, a plea yesterday talking about the traffic chaos that was coming through Princeton. How are things today?
2: Oh, we have traffic controllers, but it is even worse today. <laughs> we have traffic backed up uh, Highway 3 heading east, Highway 3 heading west, and all the way up 5A, and we're talking like 3-4 kilometers worth of backup.
0: Because I guess it, even though the, the Coca-Cola has now reopened, it's going to take some time to deal with that backlog.
2: Yeah, I was told yesterday it took about two hours to get from Aspen Grove to Princeton, and that's usually a 45-minute drive.
0: Have you had any response to your call for help and for more resources?
2: Um, last night, the province, or the Minister of Transportation did uh, confirm with us that they were bringing in the, uh, the flaggers that are here today.
0: And has that made a difference?
2: Well, it's <laughs> that's hard to say because we've got now Highway One traffic flowing through Princeton as well, so um, it's increased our traffic by even more. Um, it's made it safer, so I'll, I'll I'll give them that. It's a lot safer than it was because now people aren't trying to, you know, navigate a, a stop sign and and no no other control whatsoever.
0: Right. So the situation, and I know you put a, a posting on Facebook that I saw, but it looked like the situation for people that aren't familiar with that is everybody was being rerouted basically through that uh, through that route through Princeton and yeah. getting to a four-way stop.
2: It, no, it's not a four-way stop. Um, it's So our main street runs right through to Highway 3, and um, Highway 5 is maybe 100 meters from there, and that's the the only stop sign coming off of Highway 3 or off of the um, the main street. So we have one um, stop sign that's controlling the traffic that's coming off of Highway 5A, trying to get to the lower mainland. And that's where the, the problem lies is you have a continuous flow of traffic and then people trying to jump in between between cars.
0: Yikes. Were there any accidents or crashes yesterday? Uh, not in town, thankfully, we
2: had some near misses. We did have a accident up on highway Five a up near allison lake um, which thankfully wasn't wasn't worse
0: Has this come i mean surely this has come up before when we've had detours in place or even just a lot of summer traffic, not even when dealing with wildfires and what's the response been then
2: so we we've been <laughs> we've been dealing with this for a long time um We've been requesting from the province something to be done with with this intersection, as well as the the intersection with Highway Three and Highway Three through town, and we've we've never gotten anywhere, and that's that's the problem. Um, we need a traffic light or, or something in place that's a permanent solution to this because every time Highway Five gets shut down, everybody comes through town, and you know. We're now dealing with evacuees and, and everybody else on top of it, and it's not safe for those people. And that's that's the main thing. We need the safety measures in place.
0: Is it also a question uh, as well of the routes are very different. If you're somebody that's used to driving the Coquihalla, it's very different when you then get on a windy route or perhaps a highway that you're not familiar with.
2: Oh, very much so. Uh, years ago, we had a minister of high, uh, transportation come to town and he came down during a snowstorm, and we asked him, so how is your drive from Merritt? And he says, that's the worst highway in British Columbia. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, how, what are you going to do about it? And he's nothing. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a, a – it's a, it's a beautiful drive. It's a nice Sunday drive. It's a nice leisurely drive, but that's what it is. It's a windy road that takes you from here to Merritt um, along – and it's one lane all the
0: way. You mentioned evacuees as well and it not being safe for them. How are things going in Princeton as far as dealing with evacuees? Uh, and is it smoky there from the fires or what's it like?
2: So this morning it was really smoky. The the smoke came in. Um, it's starting to clear off now, thankfully, but I don't know what it's like up at the fires. We do have a fire between us and Hope and, well, between us and Manning Park. And there's limited visibility up there. So that's causing issues as well because you have to, be careful how you're driving up there uh we are taking we have our own evacuees we have uh, Eastgate evacuated we have kennedy lake evacuated from the um garrison lake fire we have some people from the from logan lake here we have some people from lower nicola here we have some people from uh, from the okanagan fires that are here um we're taking in anybody who who shows up we're we're trying to help them the the most we can Um, that's not our that's not our big concern, our biggest concern is them getting here safely
0: right, so at this point, uh, you mentioned flaggers have arrived. What else do you need?
2: We need a permanent solution to this corner um, every time highway you know every time the Cocahala gets closed, people have to drive through princeton and it's not unusual for us to have traffic backed up for you know kilometers heading up that highway and it's an ongoing issue. We've, every time it happens, we call the ministry and we ask for assistance, and, and this time we finally got it.
0: Al- albeit, it will be a, a kind of a short-lived solution.
2: It will, yeah, unfortunately.
0: All right. Uh, Spencer Coyne, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on the program and talking about this. Appreciate your time. Thank
2: you. Everybody be safe.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, we mentioned this earlier on in the program. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, the first of the federal leaders to spend some time in this election campaign in B.C., and he is on the line with us now. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, I saw you, I think there was video of you rolling some dough at a local business. How has the day been?
3: The day's been great. We went to Novo Textiles, a local local lower mainland B.C. company that provides that produces PPE in Canada, made in Canada PPE, and how we need to support that manufacturing. And then we visited uh, Olivier, a bakery which has incredibly delicious breads and desserts with uh, lots of uh, interesting French-inspired ingredients and and, uh, techniques.
0: I want to talk to you as well before we get into some of the issues and what we've heard so far on the campaign trail. And I know you've been asked this before, but I am curious, why is it that you opposed this snap election, but you didn't oppose a similar snap election in B.C. back in October?
3: Well, we had had a a vote in the House of Commons not too long ago in, in June, and the vote was on whether or not there should be an election held in this pandemic. That vote was resoundingly that we should not have an election in the pandemic, 327 MPs to one sole MP who voted, yes, we should have an election. Amongst those 327 MPs that said, no, we shouldn't have an election in this pandemic, uh, one of those was Justin Trudeau. So he himself acknowledged that it was not a good idea, voted saying that we should not have an election, and then walked away from that commitment. That speaks to really how this is a selfless election. He knew it was the wrong idea. He voted in favor of this motion saying we should not have an election, and then walked away from that commitment. We think that right now this should have been the time to continue to help people get vaccinated, help people support them through this time, make sure we've got help in for small businesses, and make sure that the large and wealthy, super rich corporations pay their fair share, but instead Justin Trudeau wants an election.
0: Right. But at the time when British Columbia went to the polls as well, uh, you couldn't really say that British Columbians wanted to. We didn't have vaccines we were in. I think it was the second wave at that point. And also very similar, the the government was working. The The NDP government in this province had the support of opposition. And it seems very similar in that much like Justin Trudeau, John Horgan didn't want to have to answer questions and wanted more power.
3: Well, in this case, we've got a clear example. Justin Trudeau himself voted in this motion. He said that we should not have an election. And so he broke his own commitment. And we're just highlighting that Justin Trudeau was right. We shouldn't have had an election. He voted that way in that motion, which I said, 327 other MPs in total all said that we shouldn't have an election. And he walked away from that commitment. So it really shows that this is a selfish election. He himself voted against having an election and then went ahead and did exactly the opposite of what he committed to with his vote. So that's why we're saying it's not the right thing. But we're in the election now and we're going to fight for people. There's a lot of crises going on. We're seeing a crisis in Afghanistan. We're seeing a potential fourth wave. And we need to make sure we're delivering the help that people need. We're hoping in this campaign we can show folks that better is possible and that there is a, another option for them.
0: Uh, You mentioned making the wealthy pay, making corporations pay. You have floated the idea of the wealth tax in the past. Mm -hmm. Can you explain again, how does a wealth tax, a 1% tax on the wealthiest in the country, how how does that actually lead to enough revenue that it's going to make a difference?
3: Well, we look at what's going on in this pandemic and we think about how workers had to sacrifice a lot. A lot of people lost their jobs. We know that a lot of small businesses suffered and had to shut down their doors. And many of them were worried if they could reopen ever again. And we also can look at that and compare that with the big box stores and large corporations, companies like Amazon, who make record profits in this pandemic, but pay virtually no taxes in Canada. The Liberals and Conservatives set up a system that allowed a foreign company like Amazon to make record profits, but not actually pay their fair share. So we don't think, like many Canadians, that billionaires should get away with not paying their fair share just because they have this uh, huge amount of wealth. And so our plan is to make sure they start paying their fair share. Not that's something that Canadians agree with.
0: Aren't you, though, also talking about Canadian families, Canadians who are in that top percentile? Uh, I think it's, what is it, 14,000 families in the country that would also be subject to the wealth tax?
3: Well, we're talking really about the, the 44 billionaires in Canada, the richest billionaires who increased their wealth by $78 billion in this pandemic and are not paying their fair share. We're talking about folks that have offshore tax havens where they make profits and they hide that money in a bank in the Caribbean or in Europe and don't contribute fairly. These are laws that are right now allowed to happen, that liberals and conservatives have created. And we think enough's enough. Workers pay their fair share so should billionaires.
0: How do you, when you talk about the fair share, though, so why not go after that? Why not go after somebody that's not following Canadian tax law? Why do you have to bring in a whole other tax? Well,
3: because right now the system is designed that, you know, you or I don't have offshore tax havens where we hide our profits, but the billionaires and the wealthiest in Canada hide their wealth by using offshore tax havens. We don't think that's fair. We don't think it's fair that a foreign company like Amazon can make record profits in Canada off of Canadians, but pay virtually no tax here. We don't accept that that should be the way things are. And Canadians agree. They think that why would we allow a foreign company like Amazon to make profits and not pay their fair share when Canadian companies have to? Why would we allow billionaires to use all sorts of loopholes when workers pay their fair share every day? And that's why we're really targeting the super wealthy. They're the ones that did the best in this pandemic they've made out like bandits, and they should be contributing fairly. Uh,
0: If it works so well, why don't other countries do that?
3: Well, we start to see some other countries do it. France has just put forward an initiative to tax the revenue of companies like Amazon at 3%. So that is a massive increase in revenue that's going to help pay for a lot of of the services that people need. Australia recently Put forward an initiative which is really going to help local media by saying any time that uh, Google or Facebook use the stories that have been hard worked by journalists that they 've got to compensate those journalists, and by putting that forward they 're actually going to see a, a significant increase in local media in Australia so there's lots of innovation there's lots of uh, good steps being taken, but we've seen it takes courage, and i 've seen so far that the liberals and conservatives aren't interested in that. when we put forward this idea to tax the ultra-rich and close those loopholes, both the Liberals teamed up with the Conservatives to vote against it.
0: Uh, I know you are in B.C. today, but we're also getting word that tomorrow we are going to be getting the unveiling of plans for a Massey Tunnel replacement. This will be a provincial announcement. Uh, We heard earlier today from the Conservative Party they would fund, although there weren't very many details in what they said, just saying they would fund this project. I'm expecting we're going to hear from the Liberal leader tomorrow on this as well. How would the NDP respond or how do you respond to federal funding for the Massey Tunnel replacement?
3: Well, we want to see federal dollars go towards infrastructure spending because we know it's a way to create good jobs. And these, these are jobs that happen in communities. We saw in the 2007-2008 financial crisis that the conservatives at the time started giving big blank checks to large corporations, hoping that by giving them these big blank checks that it would somehow result in jobs. And it didn't work. Those companies took the money and often shut down their, shut down their businesses and left the country. We believe in investing in infrastructure, so these are the type of projects we would support. We also think there's great opportunities to create jobs that reduce our emissions as well, so infrastructure like renewable energy or electrifying transportation and retrofitting buildings and homes. There's ways for us to make investments that create jobs locally, in community, and also help us fight the climate crisis.
0: So would you commit then to funding the Massey Tunnel Replacement?
3: The Massey Tunnel uh, replacement, among many other infrastructure projects that help us move around, that help us stay connected, are the type of projects where the federal government needs to be playing a role in supporting. So we'd be looking at projects like that and others where we can create good jobs locally, where we can help people get around. We also want to keep an eye to projects that help us reduce emissions.
0: All right. Uh, Jagmeet saying we're going to leave it there for today. Thanks so much for coming on the program, and I'm sure we will talk to you again.
3: I look forward to it. Thanks so much.
0: Well, you may have heard some changes were made in the province of Ontario, as far as mandatory vaccinations for certain sectors of that province. We are going to be talking more about that. And this is more about post-secondary schools. And a petition has now been circulated from university faculty, staff and students at BC universities and colleges. This petition calling for a vaccine and a mask mandate and joining me, On the line to talk more about this is Lynn Marks, President of the University of Victoria Faculty Association. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What specifically is the petition calling for? The
4: petition is calling for mandatory masking, but more particularly mandatory vaccinations, or if you haven't yet been vaccinated or you have exemptions from being vaccinated, that you would be required to have regular rapid COVID testing so that you then wouldn't come to campus if you tested positive for COVID. This is the approach that most of the, almost all really now of the universities in Ontario have taken as well as the major universities in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And we're really hoping that B.C will move
0: forward on this very soon what do we have in place right now then when it comes to people returning to universities colleges post-secondary in BC
4: practically nothing really um, we have the provincial government's guidelines for post-secondary put out at the beginning of July at a time when case counts were extremely low and we were many of us were very hopeful but they do not require mandatory masking. They certainly do not require vaccinations. They encourage those things, but the universities have been told that they cannot require masks from people and they cannot require vaccinations, that this is all to be done under the direction of the public health office. So we're waiting to hear that hopefully the public health office guidelines will have changed or universities were granted autonomy the way they have regularly, that the way they have in Ontario, which is why so many universities there have been able to make their own decisions. But right now, that's why our members and other members of the university community and post-secondary across BC are very anxious, because at this point, an instructor in their own classroom cannot ask students to wear masks A staff member at a counter cannot ask students coming to the counter to wear masks. That the situation at the moment.
0: And so there's a big difference then when we look at how people are being advised in this province. When we've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked specifically, would it be okay for businesses to require that patrons and employees be vaccinated? And she said, absolutely, yes, that's a tool that businesses can use. But then it's different for post-secondary. They don't fall under that same guideline? No, they don't
4: post-secondary in bc um has it has much less autonomy as i've said than universities in other provinces particularly ontario so the universities have to follow the guidelines of the ministry of advanced education and they're telling them and they told them very clearly at the end of july that universities can't implement mask or vaccination mandates that on their own, they have to follow what the public health officer tells them. So no, universities don't have the same autonomy. Universities or colleges don't have the same autonomy as private businesses in terms of regulating the health of their employees and students
0: or trying to protect the health of their employees and students. How do you anticipate then, what do you think September is going to look like if nothing changes?
4: I try not to think about that. I'm just This is why I'm doing this. I have confidence that Dr. Bonnie Henry and the B.C. government doesn't want a total nightmare in universities and colleges in the fall. So we're really hoping to hear from them sometime this week that they have changed course here. Dr. Bonnie Henry was the first, made B.C. the first province to mandate vaccinations in long-term care, and so far the only province. So we're hoping to see some leadership here. Right now, B.C. is lagging, again, behind Ontario, behind Quebec, and behind, or sorry, not, behind Ontario, behind Saskatchewan, and, and Alberta. Although Alberta is acting, the three major universities in Alberta just announced and they today, and they are acting on their own. So they've been given the autonomy? Well, I don't know if they've been given the autonomy They've taken the autonomy. I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. And they're not... They're mandating that either you be vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated, then you are required to have regular mandatory testing to be on campus in the fall. And since this just came out today, I can't
0: say any more about the Alberta situation. (laughs) Sure. Um the way it stands then in VC the fact that masks are no longer mandated but they are recommended in places is there the the opportunity in post secondary when everybody goes back or people go back in September is there the space or is it possible then if we if if you're not able to mandate vaccinations to obviously recommend masks and also bring in distancing or plexiglass or other measures of safety? Well,
4: as I said, the, universe, the government so far has said universities can't mandate masks and even individual faculties, faculty members can't require masks. Physical distancing is not realistic at this point. At this point, we unless we went online, which would create total chaos and be very unfair to instructors and students alike, students who come back to Victoria, in our case, or other cities, To go to university because they thought it was in person but um, for instance at uvic we are we're over enrolled we have classes with 300 or 200 students that are in classrooms for 300 or 200 students you can't you cannot mandate physical distancing in that context and we don't have any extra classrooms or very many extra instructors either So physical distancing, like mandating physical distancing at this point, is not realistic. The only alternative is to go online, which would, as I said, create chaos, be very disappointing for students and very difficult for instructors, and would suggest a failure of this government to actually protect people and allow them to have a face-to-face learning experience in the fall, which is what other provinces and other universities are doing.
0: Uh, I know you and uh, faculty members at UBC and SFU have submitted this petition. It has, uh, I believe, more than 2,000 signatures. I, I, w- I imagine you've not heard anything back at this point, but when would you need to hear back by uh, to, to know, then again, what's going to be happening when school starts?
4: Well, as soon as possible, I'm hoping that we will hear this week from the government as to what's happening. So that's very much my hope, because some people are getting so anxious. I don't know if you heard one department at SFU is taking it into their own hands and requiring masks and saying people need to be vaccinated to come to labs. That isn't the best solution. That's just what we need are institution-wide and government-wide mandates That um, create clarity, create certainty, create a sense of safety for students, faculty, and staff. So that it needs to happen. It needed to happen three weeks ago. But it would be way better if it happens today or tomorrow than in another two weeks. It, It is very disappointing that it's taking so long. But
0: I have hope that there will be a recognition of the need for these measures. All right, so we'll leave it there. Lynn Marks, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.